Romans chapter 8, probably one of the greatest chapters in the entire Bible in terms of the, um, the depths of what, what's here, the concepts, the truths, the implications of them. Um, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, that we've been set free from the law of sin and death, and that we're no longer uh, slaves to the law, and and we're no longer slaves to our flesh. And there's this glorious freedom uh, that we have, that we now belong to the living God. And Paul is uh, explaining these things to us. He's driving them home. He's um, opening up our hearts and driving these truths inside. Um, But at the same time that there's no condemnation and that we've been completely forgiven, uh, we're learning that God did not save us in order to leave us in the same condition that we were in prior to our salvation and uh, and him finding us and and, and, um, coming into our lives. And so God has laid before us in his son a pattern of what it is that he is shaping us into. We are becoming like Jesus. That's the desire of the Father and his work in our lives. He didn't save us and then immediately bring us to heaven. We're still here. We're still in this earth. And so there's something that God is now doing. There's something that he wants to do with our lives. There's a purpose. But first there's something that he wants to do in our lives as he's shaping us uh, and making us what we're supposed to be. And so he's making us like Jesus, and it's this process that the Bible calls sanctification. And it just means a change from what we were prior to Christ to what now he is desiring to shape us and make us into. So he has given us now this new law that Paul talked about in the early verses of this chapter. He calls it the law of the spirit of life, wherein now we're no longer under the commandments trying to keep a law that we could never keep, but now he has equipped us and he's literally written his will in our heart. He's taught us to hear his voice, that there's a voice that comes from somewhere inside of us that bids us to to what's right. And so we know his will and we have his voice and he's given us his word. We have the Bible and we have the Holy Spirit to interpret it and teach it. And so we read the word of God and it's not like we're reading a foreign language. We're reading something and he's applying it. He's opened it to us and, and it touches our understanding and we can comprehend the things that God is saying. And so we, we know who he is based upon what he's written to us in his word, given to us by his spirit. And then fourthly, he's given us through his spirit, he's given us the power that is necessary in order for us to obey the things that he said. And so he takes these things, his will, his voice, his word, and the power of his Holy Spirit in our life, And Paul calls that the law of the spirit of life that we are now under. And what that means is that we have been equipped by God with everything that we need in order for us to become Christ-like and for us to change. And so God is working this in us. But every day of our lives, we have the choice of whether or not we're going to walk after, that is follow, the desires and the call of our body, the flesh, or whether we're going to follow, go after the call of the Spirit and His will and His desire. And what we learned last week, Paul told us that if we go after the flesh, 
that it's going to lead to death. There's going to be a death of our joy, a death of the fruit, a death of ultimately physical death, you know. But if we'll go after the Spirit, if we'll follow what God has laid out for us, and we allow Him to do His work in our life, then that's going to result in life and in peace. That there's going to be a growth, that we're going to understand our purpose, we'll realize the reason why it is that we have been made. And so that's where we are. And we're talking about this process now of being sanctified. And so in the section that's before us, where we'll pick up in verse um, uh, 14, and today today we'll go through verse 27, we're going to see two things. We're going to see, first of all, our identity, who we are now that we are in Christ Jesus. And then second of all, we're going to look at this process a little bit of, of changing Uh, of God making us more Christ-like. And so he begins in verse 14 by talking to us about our identity. And so he says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, and again, just making the connection to everything that he has previously said concerning our position. We're in his Spirit. We're in him. And as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. So those who are following after the Spirit's will, walking in the steps that he's placed and submitted to the leading of the Lord in our lives, he says that our identity, what we are, is that we are the sons or the children of God. Not his servants, not just those whom he's called, not his subjects, but he calls us his sons. And then he explains in verse 15, he says, For you have not received the spirit of bondage, slavery, chains, again, unto fear, but rather, in contrast, you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. And so he gives a contrast between these two spirits again, the spirit of bondage, that it was to be under the law, which leads only to fear, fear of condemnation. We have not received that spirit. But rather, it's a spirit of adoption. And so God has literally put within us his spirit, and it's a spirit of adoption that does something inside of us that makes us realize that we're his sons. He uses the word Abba there in verse 15. Only time uh, that 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 word is ever uh, used in this way as it relates to our relationship to God. And it's a word of intimacy wherein, you know, like we, we would, you know, call our, our dad, we would call him father out of respect for his position. But in respect to our relationship, we call our father's dad, daddy. And that's what Abba is most like. It's, it's like saying daddy. And what Paul is saying is that God has put the spirit within us now, wherein our relationship toward God is that, that he's our dad. He's our daddy. And, and in some you know, part of our mind, we almost think of that as being sacrilegious. <laughs> you know, like we're going to call God dad. You know, in the Bible, uh, Old Testament, his name was so holy that they, they wouldn't even speak it. They, they lost the translation of his name, whether it was Jehovah or Yahweh, because it was so holy that they wouldn't even write the vowels. And for someone to come in those days and to say, well, God is my daddy, you would say, just step away. You might get struck by lightning. You can't talk about God in those terms. You know, he's holy. He's God. You're going to call him your dad. 
when Jesus talked about God being his father, they picked up stones to stone him. They, they, it was considered blasphemy to say such a thing. And now Paul says that God has given us the spirit of adoption, whereby the spirit of God inside of us is making us cry out, Daddy. He's made, he's made us look at God that way. And so he says in verse 16, the spirit itself, the Holy Spirit in us, bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Now, he doesn't say that the spirit of God bears witness to our spirit, but he bears witness with our spirit, meaning that the two have been made one. That God in his Holy Spirit has come into our lives and the fellowship that he now has with us the communion is so uh, united that there's a bearing witness with our spirit and we know inside that we're the children of God. Now, you try to explain that to an unbeliever and it's impossible. You say, well, I'm, I'm a child of God. And you say, well, how do you know that you're a child of God? Well, I just know. <laughs> well, what, how do you know? I don't know. I just know. There's, some, there's a witness inside of me that I know that I'm saved. I know that I'm accepted. And the only way that Paul can explain it, even to a Christian, is just to say that his spirit does something invisible inside of us that bears witness with our spirit where we just know that we're the children of God. That that's the kind of relationship that we now have with God because of what he did through Jesus Christ, this law of the spirit of life. So what's the implication? We're the sons of God. So what does that mean? He says in verse 17, he says, and if children, so if we're children, the born ones of God, then we are heirs, heirs of God. That is that we're going to be in, inheritors and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may also then be glorified together with him. Now, when he says, if children, he's not saying that if in, the, in a conditional sense, but he's saying it in a positional sense, and in the word really is since. In other words, since we are children of God, then therefore we are also heirs of God, and thus we're joint heirs of Christ. And so the passage that's to follow really explains to us what does it mean that we are now heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Then he uses the word again. He says, if, and it's since, and, and, and see this, notice it at the end of the verse. It says, since so be, not if, but since so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. Because we share in Christ's sufferings as heirs of God, children of God, we also shall share in his glory in the ages to come. But Paul now introduces this whole concept and this theme of suffering in the Christian life and the part that it plays in God's plan and our relationship with him while we're here on earth. Now, that's probably our least favorite word in the Bible. It's probably our least favorite word in all of life, this whole concept of suffering. And sometimes we, we kind of ignore it or read over it or wish it wasn't there or we kind of like just make it invisible away in our mind and, and, and suffering just as, well, that's not a part of this. You know, we're children of God and so therefore we don't suffer. But really it's an ignored reality. It's something that we face. It's something that's real. 
We read in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ when he was on the earth that he was a man of sorrows, that he was acquainted with grief. Jesus, we see constantly in his earthly ministry, we hear him talking about his own suffering. He talked to his disciples continually. I don't have time to give you all the references of the times when he spoke to them of the things that he was suffering and the things that he would suffer. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, that Jesus suffered being tempted. It says that he was tempted in all points, like as we are, yet without sin. And some, some, sometimes we think, well, he was tempted, but those temptations never touched his emotions. He never felt any pressure from those temptations because he was Jesus and he was God. It was like, well, you can't penetrate perfect purity with any kind of defilement at all. So he was tempted, but it didn't hurt. No, no, no. The Bible says that he suffered being tempted. He was in agony bearing the weight of those temptations, being fully man, yet still being fully God, and bearing the temptations that he bore. And it was suffering for him. It was agony for him to do it. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8 says that Jesus learned obedience, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience through the things that he suffered. And that's a great mystery. Because we know that Jesus didn't learn obedience by disobedience. Right? Like we do. You know, we do the wrong thing, we get zapped for it, and we go, okay, now I know that I'm not supposed to go that way. Well, we know that Jesus never was zapped for disobedience, but yet somehow he was able to relate to us and that he learned obedience through the things that he suffered, meaning that he had to carry the experience that we go through in the learning process, learning obedience through suffering. And yet Jesus did that in some mysterious way that we can't understand. Without sin, he went through that same suffering that we go through, learning to walk this life, being tempered and shaped through sufferings. And he walked that line, that, that path, that's laid out before us in scripture. It's a path that's marked with suffering. Jesus not only suffered himself, but Jesus also promised that all those that are born after him would also experience suffering. In John chapter 15, verse 18, Jesus speaking to his disciples, he said, henceforth, I don't call you servants. I'm sorry, verse 18. It says, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they've persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they've kept my saying, they will keep yours also. Jesus saying that, listen, as it was with me, so shall it also be with you. John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus said, these things I have spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace in the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Again, not a promise from God that we like to hang on the wall in our house and say, Lord, I claim that today. In Jesus' name, make that a reality in my life. You know? But it's as much a promise to us as the first part of the verse where he says that in this world we'll also, or in him, we'll have peace. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, the Apostle Paul, 
writing to us by the Spirit of God. He says that all they that desire to live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer. There's that word again. And it's a reality. If we desire to live godly, and I desire it, something in me desires it, and to live godly in Christ Jesus. And Paul is saying that suffering is going to be a part of the life that has a desire to live after God. In Acts chapter 14, verse 22, there's a summary statement that's being given to us there of Paul the Apostle's ministry to the churches in Asia Minor. And it says that he went through all of Lystra and Derbe and Iconium, strengthening the churches and telling them that through much tribulation, we must enter the kingdom of God. That means it was a common part of Paul's message. And he spoke to all of the churches, telling them that part of this life and what we're going to suffer in this life is that there's going to be trials, there's going to be troubles, there's going to be suffering. And it's a great question mark for you and I. We say, well, why is it that if I'm a child of God, if I belong to, to the king, and he's sovereign over all things, then why doesn't he insulate me from suffering? Why doesn't he preserve me and keep me from suffering? Why do I have to suffer being a child of God? Why do good, bad things have to happen to, quote-unquote, good people? You know, as though there, there's something good in us apart from the work of God within our life. Why do we have to go through suffering? Why is it a part of this whole thing? And here's the answer. Is that because not only has God adopted us into his family to make us his sons... But now God is adapting us to make us fit to be in his house, to be in his kingdom. The adoption process is real easy. That's just the signing of paperwork, right? I mean, he paid for it in his blood and now we come to him by faith in Jesus Christ and we're adopted into his family. But now there's this whole process of adapting us so that we fit within his family. And that's this whole thing of sanctification. And that process is not as easy. I've known a handful of uh, people throughout the years that have adopted children into their family, sometimes out of foster care, uh, sometimes from a foreign land. And, and, and the adoption, I mean, it's expensive. But that's the easy part. You know, you just sign the papers and it's done. But now you're bringing a life from another culture, another background, a different gene pool, and you're bringing them into your family, and there's an adaptation process. And that can be extremely difficult. I knew a couple that lived on the other side of the county, and they adopted a couple of kids from Russia. And it was an extreme process just to get them in. And then finally, after the years of going through all the hoops, and finally these kids are now adopted, they had a three-year-old little girl, barely could talk. She, she didn't know the language at all. But here she is now. She, she, she has to be potty trained. She knows nothing. And yet at three years old, she'd get up in the middle of the night, and she'd go down to the refrigerator and the pantry, and she would steal as much food as she could, and she'd hide it in her bedroom. I mean, how does a three-year-old even have that in them to do that? You know, and, and so this adaptation process now of having to take this little girl, so, you know, you don't need to do that. It's all yours. You can just leave it in the pantry. <laughs> you don't have to hide it in the mattress, you know, finding stale pancakes underneath the mattress. You know, <laughs> this is a common reality. You know? And so God now brings us in 
And there's this process of things, and it's a painful process. There's suffering that's attached to it. Now, Paul's going to talk about these sufferings in the verses that follow, and he precursors it in verse 18. Notice what he says. He says, For I reckon, or impute, or take by faith, or put it to the account, that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. So the sufferings that we face in this life and the reality of those tribulations, if you take all of those things and you put them on one side of a balance or a scale or a teeter-totter, a seesaw, and then on the other side of that same scale, you take all of the glory that awaits all of the reason, all of the purpose for those sufferings and why we go through them, and you place those on the other side of the scale, then what Paul is saying to us now is that they're not even worthy to be measured on the same scale. Sometimes we think, well, I sure hope it's worth it. I hope that the things that I'm suffering and the trials that I'm facing in this life, I hope that the glory that I one day, I hope they worth, they, they equal out at least in some way because sometimes I think that they can't. The difficulties, the problems, the temptations, the failures, the shame, the circumstances, the things that I didn't choose, the pain that I'm going through in this life. I hope it's all worth it when I stand before. And Paul says this. He says, I reckon, I impute that those sufferings don't even belong on the same scale. They can't even be in the same classification system. And we look at Paul and we hear what he says and we say, Paul, you know, I'm really glad that you felt that way that you could impute it that way. But I don't know if I can do the same thing. And Paul would look at you and I as we would give him that argument, and he would say, well, you know, I, I understand your frustration. I understand your doubt and all of that. But I happen to know a thing or two about suffering, Paul would say to you and I. He would say, have you read the letter that I wrote to the Corinthians where I talked about some of the things that I went through, some of the sufferings and some of the issues that I faced? Let me read it to you. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24. Paul says, Of the Jews, from the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes, save one. Remember the flagellum that Jesus was whipped with? Paul says, I experienced that five times. He says, Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. He's talking about rocks. Three times I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. Can you imagine? You ever been out in the water? You ever, you ever go out on a bodyboard and you just get caught in that rip current and it pulls you out instead of in? You know that feeling that goes on? Can you imagine you can't see the shore anymore? And you're just floating on a piece of a ship? Paul says, it's happened to me. I've been there. A night and a day I've been in the deep. In journeyings often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils by my own countrymen, in perils by the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness, in painfulness, in watchings often, watchings mean patience, not knowing the outcome of a thing, in hunger and in thirst, in fastings, in cold and in nakedness, besides all those things that are without, those are all external conditions, he says, that which cometh upon me daily, the care or the concern of all the churches. 
the responsibilities that I have to bear in carrying and pastoring and leading the churches and fulfilling the ministry that God has given to me. And Paul says, I know a thing or two about what it means to suffer. Now, what's remarkable about all of that is that in the very same letter that Paul lists these things that were his trials, his difficulties, in chapter 4, he says to them, he says this, he says, our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. You say, light affliction? Paul, that, those things are not on my light affliction list. Those are in the really hard things list, categories of things that you went through there. Light affliction? Interestingly, right after Paul gives this list to the Corinthian church of the things that he suffered, he says this in chapter 12. He says, I knew a man, and he's speaking of himself, in Christ 14 years ago, whether in or out of the body, I don't know. God knows, but such a one was caught up to the third heaven, meaning that Paul was given a glimpse of the glory that awaits. And he says, and I knew such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell, God knows. He says how that he was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. Now, when I read that, I I go, okay, what's the next verse say? Tell me, what was it? What did you see? What did you hear? And he gives nothing more. That's it. He says, I was caught up into paradise, explaining what he saw, just describes it as paradise. And then he said, I heard words that are unlawful to speak. In other words, if I try to put into human language the things that I heard in that place, it would be sin. It would be unlawful. Because I would be lowering the reality of what it was by so much, just by trying to put it into human words, that it would make it a a, a complete misrepresentation of what I saw and what I heard when I was there. And so a man who suffered physical, mental, and situational things way beyond what any of us could ever say that we have suffered and who also saw things and heard things that are exponentially beyond anything that we have ever seen or comprehended or thought of, that man now testifies to you and I, and he says that the sufferings that we go through in this present life are not worthy to even be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us in the time that is yet to come. They don't even belong on the same scale at all in this whole thing. And so he talks about these things and he says that there are a light affliction. And now Paul's going to go on in our our study here in Romans 12 and he's going to give to us three reasons uh, why suffering exists. And that's the big question, isn't it? Why, Why is there suffering? Why do we suffer? What's the purpose of it? Why is it here? And, and, and he's not going to give us the reason why we suffer yet, but he's going to give us the reason why suffering is a reality. Why is suffering a reality? And he's going to do it by talking to us about three groanings that come up in the passage. First of all, the groaning of creation itself in verse 22. Then, The groaning of ourselves in verse 23, we ourselves groan also. And then when we get into verse 26, 
The Spirit is groaning within us. The Holy Spirit groaning within us. And so those three groanings are going to give to us three reasons why suffering exists in this world. And the very first one that's given to us in verses 19 all the way through verse 22 is suffering is present, first of all, because we're in the midst of a fallen creation. We're in the midst of a fallen creation. Notice in verse 19. He says, for the earnest expectation of the creature, that is the creation, the creation itself, is waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God. The earnest expectation, what that literally means, is the intense, persistent expectation or the intense, persistent hope of what? of the creation itself, it says, is waiting for, and then it uses this phrase, the manifestation of the sons of God. What is the manifestation of the sons of God? That is when saved humanity, redeemed humans, people that have been born again, bought by the blood, when we are revealed to be what it is that we were made to be, Meaning, when we've been glorified, when this mortal puts on immortality, John writes and he says that it do, we do not yet know, it does not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he will appear, then we will be like him. That's what it means when it talks about the manifestation of the sons of God. When Jesus returns and we're changed, Paul says that we will not all die, but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. And we'll be torn through with glory and we'll we'll be glorified, we'll be changed. That's the manifestation of the sons of God. And what he's saying here is that the creation itself has this intense, persistent expectation waiting for the day when humanity realizes the reason for which it was made. Now, what does that mean? I mean, that's like, what do you mean that the, the creation itself is, is, is waiting with this intense hope? Here's what it means. It means that we don't even realize yet what it is that this world was made for. The creation itself has not yet realized its own destiny, what it was made for. You just think about that for just a minute. It, is that the, the, even the fallen world that we live in right now, is a shadow of what it was made to be and what it one day will be, or what God intended it to be, when when things are set right and things are made the way they're supposed to be. We get a glimpse of it in the ministry of Jesus, don't we? Where it says in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking upon the water. It yielded its strength to his command. Jesus would take loaves and fishes, look up to heaven, bless and break, and they would be multiplied in the presence of his disciples. We see the power that Jesus the Son in his glory had over the creation itself. And it's just a small taste of what it was yet to be. And the Bible tells us that the earth itself is longing for the day when it can be what it was made to be. We realize, don't we, that the world was made for us, right? God created the world in six days and then he made man. The world was made as a place for man. And yet we don't see in this day the world yielding. Why? Because the world is fallen. We live in a fallen world. For the creature, he says, the creation in verse 20, 
The creation was made subject to vanity. That is to futility, emptiness, fallenness. Not willingly, meaning it wasn't its own will, but by reason of him, God's reason, who has subjected the same in hope because, he says, the creature itself or the creation itself shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans, there's the first groaning, and travaileth, it labors like a woman who's about to give birth, in pain together until now. That the whole world is groaning under this corruption, this vanity, and this futility that's in waiting for the glorious liberty of the sons of God. Now listen, you say, what does that have to do with me, the creation groaning and the fallen world fallen and waiting for its expectation and the whole thing? Listen, part of the reason why we suffer is because we live in a fallen world. The reason why there's disease, why there's death, why there's decay, why there's corruption, the pain, a lot of it, of what we experience, is because we live in a fallen and broken world and it's just a byproduct of living where we live. What was it like... In the world before the fall. You just think about what it was like when God made all that he made. And then he set Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden in a glorified state. What did that look like? Were they clothed with light? What was it like for Adam to you know, eat from the trees of the garden and to, and to live in that experience and that expression? We have no idea. But what we do know is that the world that we live in now is vastly different from the world that God initially created. It's a fallen world, and it itself is waiting for it to realize its destiny, and we suffer in this world. Notice the second groaning, and it's the second reason why we suffer. It says in verse 23, it says that not only they, not only it, the creation, but ourselves also, that is you and I, which already have the first fruits of the Spirit, meaning that Christ is already in us. It says that even we ourselves groan within ourselves waiting for the adoption, to wit, or that is, the redemption of our body. There's a groaning that exists within us because we're in this fallen creation and we're waiting for something that we know is coming That inside of us there's a testimony given to us by the Spirit of God that there is life beyond this planet. And inside we groan, waiting for the reality of what's been purchased to be then in the place where it was made to be. And we groan within ourselves. Why? Because just like the world was made subject to vanity, in this position we're subject to vanity. What does it mean to be subject to vanity? Subject means slaves, right? To be subjects means to be a servant of. And what's vanity? Emptiness. And in this fallen condition, we are servants to emptiness. What does it mean to be a servant to emptiness? I was reading about Mozart, the musician, the one who wrote the classical music that we still enjoy to this day. And Mozart was this amazing amazingly gifted, amazingly talented uh, human being. He was a protege. 
And, and, and the, the music that flowed out of his life came so naturally to him. And there was a host of other people during his time period that aspired to be what he was. And they studied and they gave themselves to and they practiced and they, they, they tried with everything in them to produce what this man just seemed to effortlessly be able to just produce. It just flowed out of his life and yet no one could touch any of the things that he did. And this man that was so incredibly gifted and graced with such an ability to touch so many lives, yet his life was so completely empty. He was a completely immoral, completely self-consumed man. And he lived his life in complete vanity to the point where when Mozart died, there wasn't a single soul that came to his funeral. It rained on that day, and the people that buried him, buried him in a place, and when the next day, even his own wife didn't come, when they tried to find his grave, they couldn't find it, and they never did. To this day, nobody knows where Mozart was buried. Such an amazing gift to humanity, and yet it was wasted away. It was vain. It was vanity. Lived for nothing. I think of Alexander the Great. And by the time he was 32 years old, he had conquered the entire world. There was no lands left to conquer. And when he was 33, he wept because there was nothing left for him to obtain. And he, he had gathered everything literally that it's possible to gather into his life. And at the end of gathering it all, he wept because there was nothing left to gather because it wasn't enough. And he died young and on his deathbed, he said to the people that, were embal that would be embalming him, he said, though it is the custom of our people to wrap the hands and the feet, I command that my hands not only remain unwrapped, but they remain open, palms up for everyone to see. And they said, why? He said, so that everyone can see what it is that I'm carrying with me in my hands when I leave this world. A man who conquered the entire world and yet had this emptiness inside knowing that he had attained it all and yet he possessed absolutely nothing. I read about a woman who lived in the 1800s. Her name was Betsy Patterson. And she was given the, um, the title or the, um, the reputation of being the most beautiful woman in America in her day. And Napoleon, Napoleon Bonaparte, his brother, came over to America from France to seek out this woman. And he found her and he convinced her to be his wife and he married this woman. And she went back to Europe with him, but the marriage fell apart. It didn't work. But in the process of things, she became extremely wealthy because of who it was that she married and what she married into. And she lived a very vain life. She lived a very opulent life in the riches and the wealth that she had. And when she came into her older years, she wrote a letter to a friend back in America. And she said, I used to have, or there was a time when I had everything but money. Now I have nothing but money. That was her response or, or, or her, the testimony. And she said, I pass my days away in futility and emptiness and idleness, trying to find something to amuse myself and pass the time away. And I've become weary of life and I want nothing but to die. Subject unto vanity. Calvin Coolidge was walking across the White House lawn with a senator during his presidency. And the senator looked at Calvin Coolidge and he, he, as they looked at the White House, and he said, I wonder who lives there, jokingly talking to the president. And the president looked at his, the senator, and he replied to him, and he said, no one lives there. They just come and go. 
And you just think about what people do and what they go through to obtain that office and how hard they work to get to that point. And yet they get there and they realize that that's not my house. It's not mine. I'm going to leave it. The Bible says that the glory of man is like the flower of the field, that it arises, it blossoms, it withers, it disappears, and even the place where it was doesn't remember it anymore. The glory of man like the flower of the field. Napoleon wrote concerning, said concerning his own life, he said, when I die, volumes will be written about me. Libraries will be filled with stories about my life. But a hundred years from now, it will just be a sentence or two in someone's textbook. And, and, and in the future, it'll just be my name. No one will even know or remember anything I did or even care anymore. Subject to vanity. And that's what we are. And there's a suffering that's in it because we're slaves. Now, we know that there's nothing in this world that can satisfy us. We know that no matter what it is that we obtain or experience or have, that no matter what it is, it's never going to satisfy us. Why do we still try? We still try. Sometimes I marvel at myself because I've tasted. I've never been to heaven. I've never had a vision. I don't, I've never had anything, but I've tasted, and, and I hope you have too, the powers of the world to come. I've experienced his presence. I know that that's where life is. I know what it is to be filled with the Spirit. I know the access. I know how to get there. But I amaze myself sometimes how I can be more concerned with my cup of coffee than I am with being in his presence. That that's the thing that consumes my mind more than anything else. I'm subject to vanity. And there's this grappling, there's this wrestling that goes on inside of me between what I know and what I want. And there's a suffering that's attached to it. We're created, we're subject to vanity in this whole thing. He says, we groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to it. That is the redemption of our body. And that thing in me is going to produce one of two things. It's either going to produce depression, <laughs> because I'm going to realize one day that I cannot be satisfied. And isn't it amazing, isn't it interesting that the more a person has, the hungrier they are, and the more empty they feel inside? And it's either going to produce a depression or it's going to produce a hope. Because I'm going to realize underneath all of that that I haven't yet realized the destiny for which I've been created. And that that still awaits me. And that's what Paul says in verse 24. He says, for we are saved by hope. Hope is the absolute expectation of coming good. But hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man sees, why does he yet hope for it? Meaning that we don't see yet the thing that we're hoping for, but there's something inside that's testifying that that hope is real, that it's coming. But if we hope for what we see not, then we with patience do wait for it. And then he brings us to the third um, part. Before we go to the third part, I want to ask um, this question of why we suffer. I mean, we know why suffering exists, but why does God allow it in our lives? Why it is a part of this whole sanctification process? And there's two reasons why God allows suffering in our lives. Number one, as we said, is for preparation. We're being fitted for heaven, and we understand that in this painful process. 
I think of Joseph, you know, in the Old Testament. Remember the son of Jacob? I mean, he has his brothers, and he has his father, and he has this future, and he has these dreams, and there's all this stuff that's going for him. And then the next thing you know, he finds himself being betrayed by the only people that he trusted, his brothers. And he hears their voice as he's sitting there in a pit, and they're debating what they're going to do with him. Well, should we kill him? Or should we leave him there to die and rot on his own? Or should we sell him <laughs> you know, to the Egyptians? And this is what he's hearing out of, his, out of his brother's mouths. And then they sell him, and he finds himself being ostracized or separated from his family, and he goes down to Egypt. And he bought by this man, Potiphar, and he's got to learn this whole new language and this whole new culture. And God is with him and raises him up, and there's this new platform of life, and he gets on his feet. And then Potiphar's wife lies about him and tells everyone that he tried to rape her, and he's thrown in this prison. And again, everything is stripped out from underneath him. You think of the unimaginable suffering that it was to be going through those experiences and asking, why, God, why are you allowing this in my life? What in the world are you doing? And yet we know the end of the story, that ultimately God had prepared him through those sufferings to the day when he would stand before the Pharaoh himself and interpret a dream. And in one day, Pharaoh would take the ring off of his finger and put it on Joseph's finger and say, there's no more powerful man in the kingdom than you except for me. And Pharaoh himself, the Bible tells us in Psalm 105, that he taught Pharaoh and the senators of Egypt wisdom. He was the most powerful man in the world. And the amazing thing is that when you read the testimony of Jacob's, I'm sorry, Joseph's latter years, he had a son whose name, who, whom he named Manasseh. And Manasseh means whom God causes or what God causes to forget. And he named him Manasseh. And he said, because God has caused me to forget all of my sufferings. And if you were to ask Joseph and say, Joseph, how difficult was it for you to go through the things that you suffered in those years of preparation, he would say, what suffering? I don't even know what you're talking about. Because the sufferings of those days aren't even worthy to be compared with the glory that was produced and revealed in my life on account of those sufferings. If you were to talk to Moses, who spent 40 years in the desert, having in his memory all the things that he could have been and should have been had he stayed in Europe, and all the difficulty that it was for those days to live in the desert, and to be buffeted and beaten in the way that he was in, in the shaping of God within his life. And then to see Moses in his latter years as he would lift the children of Israel out of their slavery and become the greatest leader that they ever have. And a man who would be in the very presence of God himself. And you were to go to Moses and you would say, Moses, let's talk about those years of suffering, those 40 difficult years that you had in the wilderness. And he would look at you and I and would say, I don't really know what you're talking about. But what I can say to you is that the the sufferings of those days aren't worthy to be compared with the glory that was revealed because of those sufferings. And you can go through the whole Bible, and we could talk about David, and we could talk about Daniel, or we could talk about Ruth or Esther. We could talk about Hannah, who was barren and suffered under that barrenness, watching her counterpart just give birth after give birth, and her herself longing for a child, the suffering of it all, and to talk to them and say, what would you say about your sufferings? And they would look at us and say, suffering? I don't know, I don't remember much of the days of suffering, the things that I went through, but what I can tell you is this, is that those sufferings aren't even worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed. And part of the reason why God allows us to go through and even prescribes the sufferings that we go through is because of the things that He is producing in our lives, through our lives, and for our lives through those things that we suffer. It's preparation. 
but it's also fellowship. It says, since we suffer with him. Paul wrote to the Philippians, and he says, what things were counted loss for me, or what things were lost to me, those I consider gain. He says, I have suffered the loss of all things for the purpose of Christ. And he said, I do count them but dung that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. God meets with us in the midst of our difficulties in a way wherein we come out of them knowing him, knowing his presence, knowing his glory in a way that we never would have had we not suffered. And so God uses those sufferings to bring us into fellowship with himself. He gives the third reason as we close out this morning. He gives the third reason why we suffer in verses 26 and 27. And the reason is this. It's because of a lack of vision. Because we can't see. Notice what he says. He says, likewise, the Spirit also helps our infirmities or our weaknesses. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself, literally, maketh intercession for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. And he that searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. He says that we have infirmities. We do, don't we? Weaknesses, vulnerabilities, pain that comes on account of the sufferings and the situations that we have in our life. And he tells us that the Spirit of God helps those weaknesses, those difficulties, by interceding in us with groanings that cannot be uttered. The Spirit groans. And, 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 and what he tells us is that those groanings of the Spirit within us are the Spirit of God himself praying for the situations that we're in. You say, why is the Spirit praying for the situations that we're in? The answer is, he gives it to us there. He says, because we don't know how to pray as we ought. Do you see that in verse 26? We don't know. That's the answer. Because we don't know. Do you see it? Because we don't know. God, what are you doing in this situation? I don't know what you're doing in this situation, Lord. Why am I feeling this way? Why is this pressure coming into my life? Why is this health issue happening to me? Why can't I get along with my wife? Why are my kids so rebellious and, and, and I'm facing the difficulty? Why is there no solution coming to this situation that I've been in for so long? Why is there no answer to the things that I've been praying for? Why is there no deliverance from this temptation and from this sin? God, I don't know what you're doing. And what Paul is telling us here is that when we don't know, then the Spirit is making intercession for us, and His intercession is according to perfect knowledge. That He's making intercession according to the perfect will of God for us in our lives. Sometimes people come to me and they say, would you pray for me for this situation? It's a health situation. Would you pray for healing? Would you pray for me? I have a job interview. Would you pray that I get the job? 
Would you pray for me? I'm really going through a hard time with my wife or with my husband. Would you pray that, 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 that they would see the world the way I do? You know? and, 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 and as soon as someone comes to me, you know, of course I'm going to pray for you, but there's something that goes on inside of me that I say, well, I don't know how to pray for this situation that you're in because I don't know what the will of God is for you in the situation concerning things. It could be that this sickness that you're facing, this trial, this difficulty, this issue, this problem, it could be that this is the very will of God in your life to produce in your life something that's absolutely necessary for your future or for the good of your marriage or for the good of your mind. And for God to deliver you from the situation that you're in right now is actually detrimental to something that he sees coming way down the road that you and I have no idea what it is it's about. And so the groanings that happen deep inside of us in our spirit, that God interprets as prayer according to his perfect will, are his opening of the door to do what it is in our life that is necessary in order for us to become the people that he wants us to be. For us to be preserved in our Christian walk, blameless and pure, without spot or blemish. And to be fit for the place he has for us in eternity, what it is that we're to be in heaven. Paul said, because of the revelation of heaven that he had, that there was a thorn that was given to him in his flesh. He doesn't tell us what it was. And then he says that there was also a messenger of Satan that buffeted him constantly. A voice in his ear telling him to doubt the love of God, the provision of God, the grace of God. Pain and a messenger from Satan. Doesn't that sound pleasant? And three times Paul prayed and said, Lord, remove this thorn from me. And after the third time, God gave a verbal answer. And God said, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. And the answer of God to Paul's prayer was essentially no. That if I remove this thorn and this area of difficulty within your life, it's going to cause you to be lifted up in pride in your life in such a way that the power that I've given to you will be diminished and destroyed. And the effectiveness of your ministry and therefore your impact on eternity will be erased. And this thorn and this difficulty is essential for you in order that you be who I called you to be. I can't take it away, Paul. I'm sorry. Jeremiah would pray and he'd say, Lord, deliver the nation. Bring us to our knees. Bring prosperity again. Take away the Assyrian presence. Take away the, the armies that have besieged us and bring prosperity back into the nation. And God said, no, Jeremiah. Because it's going to be the captivity and it's going to be the pain. It's going to be the battle, the war, the captivity. That's what's going to bring deliverance from the idolatry that has caused the nation to be in the situation that it's in right now. And if I don't allow the war to happen, if there's no captivity, then there'll be no liberty. There'll be no freedom. And thus God overruled the prayer of Jeremiah, the prayer of Paul, because he knew better. 
And so as we realize who it is that we serve, as we surrender to the presence of the Spirit that's living inside of us, it causes us to surrender our will to His and to say, God, Your will be done in my life. And if this problem, if this pain, if this suffering is something that you've ordained even unto the grave, then Lord, let your will be done and not my own because I trust you. And that what you're going to do is better than what I would ever be able to do for my own life. Our vanishing point is way too close. Can't see the future. He sees all things and he's good. So how do we do it? 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we close here, verses 17 and 18. The Apostle Paul says, Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. For though our outward man perishes, that is this body, this life, this flesh, this world, our outward man perishes. He says our inward man is renewed day by day. I'm being strengthened on the inside spiritually day by day. Though the outward man is perishing, the inward man is being lifted up and built up. And then he says how? As we look, not on the things that are seen, which are temporary, but on the things which are eternal, invisible. For that which is seen, he says, is temporary, but that which is unseen is eternal. So what's the answer for you and I? The answer is that we set our affections upon things above, not on things of this earth. The answer is that we lift our eyes beyond the planes of the here and now and see the bigger picture of what God is ultimately producing and preparing us for in eternity. We're being adapted for the kingdom that's to come. And part of that process is the suffering that we face. And we're called to embrace that suffering. Since we suffer with him, we also will be glorified together with him. It's a reality. It's part of things. And it's good. It's for our good. It will turn out for good. And that's where we'll pick up next time in Romans 8:28 and I think we all know that verse, right? For all things work together for good. Not all things are good. But all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose.